Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. In the past week, the fight in our nation's Congress over raising the debt ceiling dominated the news cycle. On Thursday, lawmakers arrived at a deal to raise the debt ceiling by $480 billion, which will fund obligations and prevent default until December 3rd. Today, we will be discussing this current debt battle and, more broadly, the United States national debt. But before we get started, let's meet the panel. Brian? Hi, I'm Brian. I am currently a third-year law student at Marquette University Law School. Thank you, Brian. And Miranda? Hi, I'm Miranda. I'm a senior at Marquette University. Thank you, Miranda. And from last season, Dave? Hi, I'm Dave. I'm a math teacher in Texas. Thank you guys for being here. And also to our listeners, if you like our show or would like to listen to past shows, you can follow us on Spotify Podcasts under the title A Republic to Keep. Also follow us on Twitter at Republic Number 2 Keep to get updates and info about future shows. Since the beginning of our nation, our federal government, like all governments, has had debt. While the overall money that the United States government owes is referred to as debt, the yearly amount that the government spends beyond its income is referred to as the deficit, which adds to the overall debt. The debt and deficit can both be measured in what's called nominal terms, which is the basic dollar amount, or it can be measured as a ratio to our gross domestic product, GDP, which GDP is the total value of all economic activity in the United States during a given year. Before the 1930s, national debt primarily increased during times of war. In 1917, the United States established the debt ceiling by passing the Second Liberty Bond Act. Before the debt ceiling, Congress needed to approve each individual loan that was issued by the U.S. Treasury. The debt ceiling was a way for the U.S. Treasury to quickly finance the expenses of World War I without waiting on congressional approval for each loan. The debt ceiling has remained ever since, but has increased over time. By 1946, the United States national debt peaked at $269 billion, or 119% of our GDP. However, this debt was greatly reduced to 31% of our GDP by 1974. Since then, the national debt has gradually increased along with the debt ceiling. In fact, since World War II, U.S. Congress has voted to raise, suspend, or modify the debt ceiling almost 100 times. In the last two decades, the United States has continually gone into deficit spending, adding to the national debt every year since 2002. This has caused our debt to increase from 5.7 trillion, or 55% of GDP, in the year 2000, to 22.7 trillion, or 105% of our GDP, in 2019. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced Congress, under both the Trump and Biden administrations, to increase deficit spending dramatically. Today, our debt is the highest in the United States history, standing at $28.9 trillion, or 126% of our GDP. While there is general agreement on the need to go into deficit spending and more debt during times of recession, debate about how to handle the debt has grown during the last several decades. Some believe that fear over U.S. national debt is overblown, and that the current state of U.S. debt is stable. Others believe that the national debt has grown too large, 
and actions must be taken to reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio. So to start off our discussion, Republicans and Democrats in Congress have struck a deal to raise the debt ceiling by $480 billion, which will cover expenses and prevent any U.S. defaults until December 3rd of this year. So how should Congress handle this short-term impasse on raising the debt ceiling? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I almost think that debt ceilings are arbitrary and pointless, to be completely honest. Uh, I think right now we are still in a state of, um, I don't know if it's so much of a state of emergency, but still kind of, you know, a very tough situation um, with a lot of public benefits, a lot of um, our spending uh, needs to get done, but we don't necessarily have, you know, um, all the means to do it. So I think raising the debt ceiling right now is definitely a great idea. Mm-hmm. It seems necessary right now that since because of the pandemic and the, of course, what the government has done to raise the de- deficit spending the last several years in the last two decades, rather, it is necessary if we want to meet our financial obligations to raise the debt ceiling as of this time. Yeah. But should, I guess the question is, how should Congress be handling it in the way they are? Is there a better way to handle something like this where we need to raise the debt? Is there an automatic method we should really be pursuing? Or is there is this a better way as well? Um, I know that there are people a lot more knowledgeable on this than me, such as you and Miranda and Dave. Uh, but I, I would say we should fix our spending in other places, such as military spending should go down drastically. Um, in order to, in order to, you know, help out, but um, and not have the same situation we're in. So that would be my, you know, automatic gut feeling. But I'd love to hear what other people have to say. Okay. Um, so we, you mentioned reducing spending in other areas. That has been done before too, and honestly over time, especially since the 80s, the number one, I guess, pattern you'll see is when the debt has gone drastically up, military spending has gone up with it. But when the debt has gone drastically down, for instance, uh, in the 90s, we have seen a sharp decrease in military spending, too. The same can be said as an inverse relationship with taxes. So when taxes usually go up, we see a drastic decrease in debt over time. But when they go down or there's tax cuts, we do see usually a 10-year gradual increase in that debt as well. Interesting. So, I mean, that's you say an inverse relationship, but is there any sort of like, so I I guess I guess the debt goes up and the military spending goes up. But there is there anything else to those numbers? Um, A little more context. I'm curious. So, yeah, so it's really a point of base. The only real way, I guess, the, at least the most simple way to handle a deficit or debt is a matter of taxing and spending. So to be perfectly honest, if you want to handle a debt, you're going to have to raise taxes somehow or cut spending or do both. And usually it's been a mixture of both, not in the United States, but in un- other um, liberal Anglo 
state-style democracies such as Canada, UK, Australia. And when you also look at parties, left or right parties, both parties in the past have been able to reduce deficits um, and reduce debt, not only in the United States, but in other countries. The main factor right there is what they are, uh, what you care about. So if the party before being elected has really driven home a message that we will decrease this debt, we will be more fiscally balanced, then usually it gets done. And a big part of that is, for instance, cutting military spending that we have seen in the past, but also raising taxes and cutting other social benefit spending too. For instance, under the Clinton years, it was actually a mixture of both parties working together, really, to reduce that deficit. Since the last time we had a surplus started in the Clinton years and ended right at the uh, start of the George Bush presidency. So Clinton and Newt Gingrich had to, I guess, work together. In a way, it was more conflict that brought the deficit under control back then and had us, gave us a surplus. Clinton had to act. It was actually the fifth budget that Congress gave to Clinton that Clinton signed and led to reduced spending. Well, I should say led to reduced deficits. Um, I have a thought Wait. on that. Wait, sorry, yep. Brian, why don't you, uh, you go first and I can okay, make a point. Dave, go for it, Dave, go for it. Uh, here, I just kind of want to tackle your point that you just made, Liam, how mm-hmm. Clinton and uh, Speaker Garrett had to compromise on uh, really spending and how that led to, sorry, a uh, budget surplus and how you said if a party kind of says, like, we're going to control the deficit and debt, how uh, they kind of go for that. I'm going to disagree with your rationality because... Uh, if you do notice uh, what then-candidate Trump said uh, in 2016, he actually did pledge that he would actually uh, reduce the debt and deficit to zero. But if you actually look at numbers, uh, the debt and deficit actually skyrocketed under him with a Republican-controlled uh, House and Senate because of tax cuts and an increase in the military spending. So I would disagree with the notion saying just because a party says, like, we're going to cut the debt or deficit, they're going to do it. In many cases, from you would argue in recent American history, especially with the Republican Party, uh, is that if they claim like we're going to con- uh, uh, we're going to cut uh, taxes, but to still reduce the debt and deficits, basic math will tell you that that does not play out. And just saying, I, I would know a thing or two about that. I am a math teacher after all. <laughs> but even then, uh, just going off other things, the debt and deficit always seems to be a problem when Democrats have uh, control of the presidency and Republicans are in the opposition party. But when everything is flipped around no Republican really seems to like acknowledge that the debt or deficit is a legitimate thing. That is my two cents. That's all. Okay. I do think, uh, if I hop in, I do think that it is interesting, a point that they've made, where, you know, Trump walked in saying, oh, we're going to reduce the debt, we're going to reduce the deficit, and then, you know, we saw crazy debt, um, throughout his entire presidency. But now when Biden's in office, all of a sudden, all these Republicans are, are debt hawks, are deficit hawks all of a sudden. I, I just think that's interesting. But I'll leave you to it. Actually, I will say there's one more point I wanted to make. When it came to Clinton and uh, Gingrich, then it was like a different era since Clinton represented a much more like centrist, like third-rate party, Democratic uh, establishment talking point. Since... Um, before Clinton, Democrats were, uh, did not have the presidency for 12 years since he had eight years of Reagan and four years of H.W. Bush. So Clinton really uh, thought to himself, and the Democrat Party thought to themselves, like, if we moderate um, ourselves on fiscal issues, 
we win those uh, voters back. So that's kind of why you saw uh, Clinton and those are really like quote uh, unquote establishment centrist Democrats really focusing on uh, fiscal issues. But even then, their uh, um, history, with the exception of Clinton, doesn't really showcase that they'd really uh, do anything to tackle a debt or deficit. Because the only way, if you really want to, uh, if you really want to reduce the debt or deficit, is to raise taxes and reduce social spending. Mm-hmm. But any economist will tell you that, generally speaking, spending on things uh, like education, healthcare, and childcare are actually like improvements in the economy. So, what is it exactly? Uh, do you want do you want to have no deficits or no uh, no debt at all? Or do you want to go a little bit deeper in the hole? But in the long run, your citizens will be grateful. That's a whole other uh, can of worms you to open if you really get into this discussion. And so is there a party more, I guess, involved in creating a bigger deficit or a bigger debt? Is there a party really that, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, is to blame for the deficit, debt or deficit more? Is this for anyone or just like a follow like a follow up to my anybody question? anybody or you? Well, then. I here should I go for oh, should I go or I feel like I've been hogging a bunch of the time. Well, whoever wants to talk. Uh, here I could make my point, then you would go on. Uh, but I think as a whole, if you really want to put the blame, I'd say the Republican Party, especially when they have uh, control of the uh, House and Senate, because they'll uh, argue tax cuts are the way to you know juice up the economy, but. They don't seem to acknowledge that that seems to ramp up the the debt and deficit. And even the Senate parliamentarian uh, would have told you back during uh, Trump's uh, 2017 tax cuts that in the long run that you would be skyrocketing the debt and deficit. But that is my two cents on that. I would love to hear from uh, you, Liam, Brian, and Miranda. Well, and I'd like to modify, and you're right to say that not always party, either party is exactly um, truthful in all of their goals when coming in or in an election uh, campaign and poetry, government prose. But what, my point, I guess, was really a 90s point, uh, where in the 90s, there was a massive push also by publics around the world, particularly in liberal Anglo economies like ourselves, England, Australia, Canada, that wanted deficit reduction, debt reduction. That was a big thing in the 90s because you had seen in the 80s all around the world debt go up in a number of countries. And at the real center of the campaign for even left parties, particularly in Canada, the liberals, they put at the center of the campaign debt reduction. So if it's at the center of a campaign in campaign promises, then you can really do it, especially if there's a big public push behind it like you saw in the 90s. However, on the flip side today, I don't think that the Republicans were really putting that at the center of their campaign before Trump went to office. They definitely pushed Obama and whether or not it was probably a lot of it was probably a mechanism to block the Democrat agenda that the Republicans opposed. But a tool to block that agenda was using that deficit uh, spending and putting that front and center, too which has kind of changed public perception, not really changed, but put the debt in a perception that maybe it shouldn't be in, too. But in terms of left or right parties, I think both parties have shown in the past that they are able to do it. However, it's becoming more and more less popular to either reduce spending, because there is some strong opposition to that since the number one program that we spend upon is Social Security in this country, So we would either have to reduce spending on those popular programs 
or we're going to have to increase taxes or both. And increasing taxes, especially in the United States, is not a popular option, I think we can all agree with. Can you repeat that last one you made, uh, made about taxes, please? Well, they're both, they're both not popular options where you decrease that social spending or you increase taxes. And, of course, in the United States, especially, increasing taxes is not a popular option. Actually, I would disagree with you. If you actually ask any American, Republican, Democrat, or Independent, all across the board, they would say when it comes to raising taxes on corporations, big businesses, and wealthy people, that's actually a very popular idea. But if you're talking about increasing taxes on, like, your everyday working-class American, that's unpopular. But taxing wealthy people is objectively a very popular idea, no matter who you ask. Yeah, then taxing wealthy people, that very targeted tasks. Uh, tax when you pull it to the general public. Yeah, the general public likes that because most of them aren't making four hundred thousand plus dollars a year. However, when this is actually being fought for at uh, those targeted taxes, usually it's uh, usually it's brought to the public by the other side, saying, "Oh, they are going to raise taxes generally." And there's kind of a boogeyman created that says that in kind of, I guess, public discomfort with the idea of raising taxes, thinking, well, what if it's not going to be just targeted? So I think there is a ge- there is a general aversion. You're seeing this right now when Biden, for instance, is saying that he will raise taxes only on the f- people making 400000 or above. There is still a large fear on middle and low-income earners thinking their taxes might go up too, especially even like in terms of sales taxes or however those taxes from the wealthy are going to be passed on to them. Well, I would say that that is just misrepresentation, then. You know, that's just false advertising on the other side. Is what I would. My response to that would be, it's like no, he's raising it on people four hundred thousand dollars more, raising on the wealthy. So that if you come along and say, oh well, you know, then there's just you know, um, they're going to not be in favor of that, the general populace, because you know, oh, they're scared our taxes are going to get raised too. I think that's just the, you know to sound a little bit hostile, it's just the Republicans going and saying, oh, they're raising taxes. Like, mm, that's not exactly true. If you're worried about this, then, you know, you're you're one of the, you, typically you're one of the millions of people in this country that are not going to be affected by this. But in fact, they're going to be benefiting from this. Um, so I think it's just misrepresentation um, on the part of Republicans. So. And I guess another question would be, Democrats, well, Republicans have been more, I guess the promoters of fiscal, like of reducing deficit spending, whether they have actually done that or not, they have had a lot of a promotion rhetoric about it. But Democrats haven't really had that much rhetoric about reducing the deficit. They haven't really put it as any top priority or reducing the debt as any top priority. So if the wealthiest were taxed by the Democrats and to start help funding, for instance, the $3.5 trillion um, social infrastructure plan that is being uh, debated, would the Democrats actually put that to reducing the debt? Would that be a plan? Or would there have to be a combination of Republicans making this play like they did in the 1990s, where there was eventually be a compromise where perhaps Democrats could do some taxes, but also there would have to be some cuts to spending? Before I say what I want to say, I want to hear what you think, um, uh, what, what would a default look like? Um, catastrophic beyond belief, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, yeah. if, if yeah. just, 
looking at some. That, so that meeting. So is that coming up to the to the um, debt ceiling and then not being able to pay it, or is that like what a default? Yeah, let me let me let me explain exactly. A default would basically be, and there there are extraordinary measures the Treasury can take if we do hit that debt ceiling, but those will only last maybe a couple of months, and that is kind of optimistic that time frame. But if we do default and the Treasury runs out of extraordinary measures to, um, I guess, give us time after that def that default, we hit our cap. We literally cannot make any more payments then. We had to default, and for the Janet Yellen, for instance, had the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of the Treasury, has said that we would have 15 million seniors stop receiving Social Security payments, 30 million families stop receiving uh, child care tax credit payments, U.S. military service members stop receiving paychecks, veterans benefits stop, postal worker and employees stop. United States credit worthiness would be downgraded, which would be also catastrophic because our interest rates would go up. And also our interest rates, the debt, what we pay on that debt, which is about $345 billion a year as of right now, that would also go up. So it, and also the entire financial system of the world economy, which relies heavily on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, there will be a rug pulled out from under that too. So you, it wouldn't be, I would say, an exaggeration to say we are looking at 1929 if the U.S. does a true default on its debt. So, yeah, not good. <laughs> yeah, not good. So I guess... Um, yeah, cool. So my question now, I guess, looking at this from a larger scale, is the current... U.S. national debt a problem that demands immediate attention, or are the worries about debt overall in the U.S., are they overblown? Is this become a boogeyman? I don't think it's overblown, but I do find an issue when there are deficit hawks in certain parties who claim that their policies that they advocate for or that they're against are in, you know, the interest of spending and reducing spending and, you know, saving the, the debt and, 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 you know, oh, it's such a big issue, so we need to figure it out right now. It's like, okay, you want to figure it out when it comes to federal spending for, you know, child care and education, but you don't want to figure it out when it's an issue of reducing the federal spending for the military. I just think that's a little hypocritical. Um, so I do think it's an issue. I just think that there are certain people who are very wishy-washy when it comes to that issue um, in their actual practice and what they legislate. So that's my two cents. Okay. And But looking at the U.S. debt, regardless of party, the debt itself, 126% of our GDP now and rising, is that something we that should be really worried about right now? Some economists say yes. Some economists say no. So what are we thinking about that huge sum of money being in debt as a nation? I actually could fish in on this one. I'm yep. going to say I think this is just a bit overblown because we are the biggest economy in the world. So I think there, uh, this issue is just a bit more complicated than economists tend to portray it or how certain political parties or politicians tend to portray this issue. This is objectively a very complicated issue. 
And even Ava, like a follow-up question to this, is it even possible to like, get our debt and deficits down to zero? Like, I just don't know how that's realistic in this day and age, especially with our current political situation. Well, the, the I guess the word of the day here might be balance, because it's not necessarily the goal of anybody to get the debt down to zero. Maybe some people. But, the, I mean, we haven't had a debt of zero since 1835 under President Andrew Jackson. And ever, ever since then, but the thing is, I think everybody is in debt of some sort. Think of anybody who's bought a house, anybody who has a car that is on a loan, or even bought a car, you go into debt to a certain amount. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, Bill Gates probably has some kind of debts out there right now. But the, it's about ability to pay that debt and fiscal stability of yourself or country. So it, you don't have to go one extreme or the other, like, oh, we have to pay or we can't pay at all. It's it's really about fiscal balance, too. So is 126% of our GDP too much? And it is possible to reduce that. We have seen in the past, after, after World War II, the second highest, I guess, in history our debt went to, under 19% of our GDP, there was massive programs to get that debt down pretty quickly, and it worked, too. By 1974, that was at 31% of our GDP, the national debt. And I think one of the major things you have to look at is nominal versus GDP ratio, too. Because in 19, 1957 was the last year that debt went down nominally. I think it went of the here. Anyway, the debt went down from about about two billion dollars in that from 1956 to 1957, a two billion dollar decrease. Since then, the natural number of like the actual number on our debt has continually gone up and up and up. But the GDP ratio, because our GDP as the economy has grown, has made it more manageable and has reduced that share of our GDP. So the, actually, when you look at it, we're probably not going to see a deficit again below $27 trillion, probably ever again. But our, but our economy will continue to grow. And I guess the main thing you have to look at is, is the investments we're putting into to go into debt, are they going faster than that interest payments we have to make on that debt? Because if they're going less, then we're in trouble, our debt's going to rise, and we're going to be that much more le less able and have that much less capacity to pay it back. Yeah, I don't know, you know, the specifics. I think that's best left for both the economists and the nerds like you. Um, but my instant, you know, inclination is to say no. It, it's not. It's not as big of a, you know, immediate threat as as the death, deficit and debt hawks make it sound. So. But I, I think you have a different opinion, don't you? I'm, from what I see, the debt is something that is a tool, I guess. The deficit spending is a tool. And when you look at something called Keynesian economic theory, which we have used really since the Depression era, it goes that there's countercyclical spending. So basically, the government has to spend more money during a recession in order to stimulate the economy, stimulate demand, and help us get out of that recession more quickly. And that is true. When you look at the panics, which were recessions of the 1800s, they, were a lot, uh, they lasted a lot longer, 
and it'll hurt a lot more. That's because there wasn't really counter-cyclical spending back then. But when you go into the Depression, there is counter-cyclical spending. Uh, and also World War II made our deficit go up to 119% of GDP. The, big dif- the biggest difference between then and today, let's look at the 2008-2009 and World War II era, is that after World War II in 1946 on, they really focused on getting the debt down. And that started with the Democrat Truman, and then you had a very moderate Republican Eisenhower in the, office, in the White House. Today, though, when you look at it, the Obama administration about after 2012 started to get the debt, started to reduce its deficit spending, but it was still pretty high, using pretty high deficit spending. They didn't really reduce enough to have any surplus, and it did not seem that reducing that debt was a major goal. And we have drastically expanded that debt as a percent of our GDP too, up to over 100% of GDP, even before the coronavirus pandemic. And that was under President uh, Obama and President Trump. So it seems like we're in a culture of debt, where as before we were a culture of fiscal balance and stability. What worries me is when we get into a good spot like we were in let's say, 2014 to 2019, are we going to make the fiscally responsible moves that we need to to balance ourselves out? Or how high can this debt go? Can it go to infinity? Maybe it can. I don't know. But we that is a very large gamble we're playing with because that get, the downside of that gamble is literally fiscal ruin of the entire global economy. Can it just keep going on to infinity? But when you stop looking at, I mean, not saying this is going to happen, but just hypothetical, if it did go up, go up through infinity, are we just looking at the interest at that point and kind of forgetting about, like, making sure it's balanced in that sense that, you know, if, if things were to go to shit or things were to go, go then um, if things were to go, that, then, you know, we could manage it. Is it about managing at that point or is it more about... Um, you know, are we looking at that number anymore? Or is it just an arbitrary number? From what I've seen, the... You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Uh, The biggest thing is, when we get to that point, is the net interest that we had to pay on our debt. Remember, we always, when we have debt, there's always interest that you had to pay on that debt. When you have a credit card, you have to make the minimum monthly payment, right? And that's the interest on it. And that grows the more debt you're in. So when you're... When you're looking at that, right now, the net, net interest on our debt hovers around 1.6% of our GDP. That's about $345 billion a year at this time, and that's going to grow. But you also have to understand that interest rates are at historic lows right now. And those interest rates were even pushed down further in the Trump administration by the acts of the Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell, too. So when you have interest rates that low, that means that the net interest rate on our debt is pretty darn low, too. But if interest rates, for some reason, rise, and honestly, economists, when you when they really talk about it, they don't really understand why interest rates have gone down and down and down, which honestly makes me worried that they won't really understand when and if they're going to go up again. So they really, since these world-renowned economists don't know why that interest rates have gradually reduced since the 1980s. How will they know when it will, will go up again? And once the interest rates, if and when 
if or when they do go up again, we're going to have a lot higher interest rate and net interest payments on our debt. That's going to take away from our ability to fund other programs in the domestic economy, like Social Security, for instance. So it's a matter, it's almost a ticking time bomb if interest rates do go up, because then our payments on that debt are also going to go up, reducing our ability to pay for other domestic programs. Yeah, okay. Do you know what would cause interest rates to go up? Just kind of, you know, what, what would be something that would cause interest rates to go up? Just so I think people know, you know, like what we're looking at. Like, I know, I know you don't have the answer. If, if the if the world renowned economists don't have the answer as to why they're down, um, then I, I don't know if we can tackle that here today. But I'm curious what what would cause them to go up, or what has in the past um, that could cause a catastrophic, you know, economic failure. But what is what does a situation like that look like? Mm-hmm. Well, when you, for instance, interest rates go up when they then the lender thinks there's a higher riskier investment for instance one of the main reasons that interest rates didn't go up after 2008 that much at least well they went up a little bit but they didn't go up as much as they should have in just a unaltered economy because the Obama administration used something called quantitative easing when they they bought mortgage-backed securities therefore it sent a signal to mortgage companies and banks that Hey, the government is literally starting to is literally stabilizing mortgage market out. We're actually backing it now. So then it was a less risky investment to give people mortgages. But if you're for instance, your interest rate if you're a riskier investment will be higher because there's a more risk of default. So, if there is if there's a herd mentality and a lot of investors around the world or a lot of countries in the world get cold feet and start doubting the U.S. dollar, our interest rates are likely going to go up then. And that and how big our debt is probably going to play a factor in that. Another thing we have to look at is things like Bitcoin, that currencies that are on the Internet that aren't attached to a country, but they're still there. And there's actually one of the reasons these cryptocurrencies have risen up is because of lack of Legitim- not lack of legitimacy, but, I guess, lack of trust in these hard currencies, too. And Bitcoin is seen as a more stable currency that the quantity is restricted and set to a certain amount. So people, a lot of people are starting to put trust in that. And that might be a sense that people are starting to have less trust in things like the United States dollar. So we can't, the thing is, I think it is a little pompous of us and a little arrogant to think that we will forever hold this high and mighty place of being the world's reserve currency and that nothing can mess that up, which is honestly feels like our actions say that sometimes. That's not scary at all. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't terrify me. What are you talking about? Um... That, do you think something as, not as simple, but I'm going to use that word, do you think something as simple as like an election can spike the interest rates? They are, maybe, maybe a little bit. I mean, more, inv- more, that investors yeah, definitely respond like, to elections. Like, yeah. Yeah. So are you saying? 
right. No, election. Well, I'm just going to say it, it, we haven't really seen interest rates respond that much to an election in the past. Um, de- I mean, uh, investors respond to elections. We have seen fluctuations in the stock market due to elections. That's for sure. But interest rates there, that's a little unprecedented. It'll be more of a, I would say, a longer term thing if we're going to have see a big rise in interest rates for whatever reason. Miranda and Dave, do you have any anything to say about just the U.S. debt in general or what how we should be really looking at this debt? I actually did think about your point on uh, cryptocurrency and everything because I was thinking when you brought that up, I honestly just forgot about Bitcoin's existence. <laughs> but it did make me think a bit about China since that's actually realistically like the next rising like threat we have mm-hmm. uh, as a country that we need to face. I would China's like Belt and Roads Initiative just uh, seeing how like China is doing more intertwined with other countries. So it is interesting to see like essentially our like global decline and China's global uh, incline. So I just think seeing that is a pretty good uh, contrast with your question. Like, can we really have like a theoretically an infinite debt or deficit? Cause once it happens, like once we, like, if we essentially get knocked down to like the second largest economy, third, so on and so forth. Obviously, that's when we don't really get to make the rules anymore. We need to follow the rules of like the first major economy in the world, and that would realistically become uh, China. Mm-hmm. And China does hold people. I think one thing that might be overblown is the amount of debt China has on us. They do hold about 1.1 trillion dollars of our debt. Um, however, that's a pretty small portion. Japan is actually the biggest foreign holder of our debt with about 1.3 trillion so, and, and then, i will say it's important mm-hmm. to note that uh, uh the united states and japan are like pretty good are like pre- very uh, very close allies so oh, you yeah, don't, yeah. i don't think there's any situation where japan would just say like no. hey we need our money now <laughs> no that's not no, japan's not the worry um if anything we had to worry about defending japan from china to be perfectly honest uh and then taiwan but getting off getting off that subject <laughs> back into the debt well, what do you think, Miranda, about just the scale of the debt? Is this a problem? Is this overblown? Um, I think it's somewhere in between. Like, if, I mean, obviously, right now, we can probably, we're probably fine. But I think the what most people are talking about when they say, like, our debt is such a huge problem is not that it's a problem right now, but that it's going to be if we don't start doing something about it. I mean, I could, it's just one of those things that... Like, I mean, I literally have, I've already given up on the fact that I'm going to receive any social security when I reach, like, I'm just convinced because it's, it's about, it's about caring for our, the future generations in our country and what they're going to have to deal with. And I mean, you just never know what's going to happen. And it's honest, it's kind of a selfish thing, honestly, um, just like as a generation to, I don't know, just kind of do whatever spending we want and just assume that like it's never going to be a problem for anybody else because that's not really true so it's i think it's just it's going to have to be a bipartisan issue i mean a lot of the stuff that all of you guys are saying earlier about parties acting or not acting on it and people being hypocritical like it's totally true like the debt is one of those issues that um people really only care about when they're trying to win an election <laughs> and then nobody really wants to do anything about it because like you said it's either um raising taxes or cutting spending and without getting into the whole argument about taxes, I mean, just overall, it's, those are just things that people don't generally want to do that 
for whatever reason, whatever blame games that people want to do for partisan politics and that kind of thing. I mean, people don't like it. So it's just, I don't know, you have to do something about it. Nobody's going to do something about it. And it's, it's just going to come back to bite us later. And I don't know. It's just like you have to do something about it at some point. So why why wait just because it's not a problem right now? I guess that, thank you, because that brings us kind of to the third wrap-up question. What should be done in the future or right now about U.S. national debt and deficits? Should we follow a strategy, focus on debt re- reduction? Should we reevaluate we, we, the way we think of debt? So I guess what actions specifically might we want to take to handle this debt? Well, I think, yep. I mean, I don't, I don't have a perfect, I don't, I really, I don't really have an answer to your question. Like, I don't know what we should do or shouldn't do, but I think it's whatever it is. Like right now it's going to have to take like a little bit of sacrifice to what maybe we aren't used to. I mean, we're going to have to raise taxes and cut spending and that sucks for us. We don't want to do that. Um, but that's, that's what you have to do, right? So I think, I don't know, somehow convincing people that, like, one generation is going to have to kind of suffer a little bit and not, like, not suffer, suffer, but it's just going to have to make a de- make decisions that they ne- wouldn't necessarily want to make just because it's, I don't know, nobody wants to have to deal with that. But in the long run, you know, short run and long run, like, that, it, that's what's necessary. Mm-hmm. I would say one one area, and anybody feel free to disagree with me on this, but one area that we could actually look at cutting spending, especially if we want to reduce our debt, is military spending. I mean, right now the United States spends in the realm of $700 billion per year on its military, which is more than the next 10 countries combined in terms of top 10 military spending countries. The U.S. is at the top and spends more than the next 10. So... And also, when you look at when we have reduced our debt-to-GDP ratio in the past, cutting military spending was usually a big part of that. After World War II, obviously cut a lot of military spending, but also in the Clinton years, a lot the, the military spending was reduced drastically, too. We also had to look at our investments with this debt. If we're going to go into debt... A lot of economists, for instance, like Paul Krugman, who's a pretty famous uh, U.S. economist, has said that we shouldn't be spending debt on things that won't really receive a payoff. And a lot of studies show that the biggest payoffs are done and on the youth. So we're looking at pre-K, we're looking at K through 12 education, uh, even Pell grants and university education spending by the government, and a lot of things that have less of a payback is honestly spending on adults we've seen too so with that what what should we i guess if we were to cut something or if we should cut something what what programs are there to cut what would be perhaps politically palatable by the u.s public military As for actual, yeah, no, I mean, I think that we should refocus and do more for the societal, uh, you know, bringing people up, lifting them up, um, and then a lot less for military, but that's pretty much what you were just talking about. 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm saying I don't think there should be austerity measures for these social welfare programs. I think it, it, the exact opposite. I think there should be a of the spectrum, which a lot of more progressive um, leaders in this country are already advocating for. Um, and it's tough because military just keeps going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And when you look at... I mean... Yep. Sorry. Um, no, good. Go ahead. I mean, I understand, like, I understand the need to cut military spending. Like, I see the arguments for that. I think what makes people apprehensive, and I don't know if this is what you guys were saying, but I think a lot of the conversation about cutting military spending isn't about just cutting spending in general. It's about cutting military spending and then spending that money somewhere else. That's so, true. As, and, like, that's not cutting spending. That's just moving more what you're spending the stuff on. So I feel like it would – and I don't, I don't know if that's what people are recommending right now, but it's just um, – I don't know. You, it just has to actually be a cut in spending, I think. No, I'd agree with that sentiment. I think that it needs to be – it does need to definitely be paired with other measures – such as a wealth tax um, and raising the corporate um, corporate taxes. But I do understand, yeah, I, I agree that it is kind of like what you're taking away from here and putting it here. But, um, yeah, I think that we need to do both. And I think we're trying to do both, and then that people say, oh, there's deficit. And then you get a lot of, you know, kicking the people to the side that need it, and then the military has just gone up and up and up every single year. Um Oh, yeah, I do think it needs to be paired with other things, such as a wealth tax and corporate tax. I think one of the main things about the last time we had a surplus under the Clinton presidency, once again, a main thing, a main characteristic about that presidency was uh, Republicans' control of Congress. They actually, it was a huge turning point for the Republican Party in 1994 when they won control of Congress finally after decades of Democrat hegemony in the chambers. Um, And there was five budgets sent to President Clinton, and on the fifth one he signed it. There was some very sharp negotiations between really Newt Gingrich and his followers and the president on how to balance the budget because Gingrich put that at the center of the Republican Party at that time, and really force the hand of Clinton to do that or to go into government shutdown, which, as we know, is not a popular option. So I, I think when I look at when I look at this, the, the the problem for in terms of debt spending and deficit spending, the problem with the Republican Party is that they they'll cut some spending, but they will also cut taxes drastically. That leads to deficits overall, and they don't want to really cut certain uh, most spending. Because that would be unpopular, especially looking at our biggest programs like Social Security. And when you go over the Democrat side, sure, they're not that opposed to raising taxes, and they'll do so. But when usually when they raise taxes, regardless of current spending, they'll also raise spending to increase that, to increase, I guess, the vote share of themselves from their constituency that appreciates that larger spending. So... They won't do something that's really unpopular with a constituency or with their platform, too. 
So I guess the perhaps the best option would be to have one party in the House and Senate, one party in the presidency to hammer this out. Or perhaps we've gone to a place that is too partisan to really find that, and then we're going to have a government shutdown for four years straight. Um, so what do you what do you think about what do you guys think about that? It, would it be possible to lawyers if we had uh, different parties controlling the legislative branch and a different party controlling the executive? I would actually say like that era is essentially dead. I know Brian would appreciate this, but I think that West Wing era of like we have a uh, uh, we have a divided government. Let's strike out a deal because historically uh, political scientists would political scientists would tell you. If you had divided government, that's actually when uh, legislation and bills and everything got passed. Yep. Because you're forced to compromise. But since I do think we're in this very partisan tribal environment where you do not want the opposition to get any victory whatsoever, I don't think anything would really work. Like, I think one of the best examples would actually be the COVID, uh, Biden's like COVID relief bill. That was widely popular amongst uh, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. But you didn't get a single Republican vote. And it said Republicans chose to focus on cultural uh, issues at the time, uh, like Dr. Seuss. So I don't think if you're I think the argument is you really can't get anything done on a bipartisan basis in this country when it comes to debt and deficit. That era, of if we have opposite parties controlling different parts of the government, you get stuff done. I think that's over just for the debt and deficit. I just think it's going to have to be one party who actually wants to advocate for this is going to go all out. And um, with rhetoric only, it's the Republican Party. Democrats don't really talk about the debt and deficit. It's only a problem when the Republican Party's in the opposition. Just my two cents. I think I, like, half disagree with that, only because, like, I agree that we're in an extremely partisan era right now and that it's unlikely that anything would get done. But I also think that even if there was one party controlling all the branches, then at some point, that's going to change, and then whoever the next party is not going to like what the previous one did, and then they're going to change it all again. An so, Obamacare situation. Exactly. So I feel like it has to be a bipartisan issue, and I don't, I don't know if that means, if that necessarily means that one party has to be in charge of the, the executive and one's in part of, in, in charge of the legislative, or a situation like that. But I think it's just, regardless of who's in charge like it can't just be one party ramming things through and i think it's going to have to come a lot from people actually caring about the issue i'm not sure how many people just like regular joes living their everyday lives like actually care about the debt and don't like this isn't this isn't a topic on everybody's mind going through the day-to-day life and i think that it's going to have to become that way and pressure is going to have to be put on elected officials regardless of who's in charge to actually do something about it. I think that's the only way to get people in this hyper-partisan era that we're in to actually take action on it. Then the follow-up to that uh, is that I would make the disagreement with that one, Miranda, because the the most productive Congress we've had um, in recent American history was actually uh, President Obama's first two years in office. And that was because Democrats had over 250 seats in the House and uh, held a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. That was the most productive Congress we've had since LBJ. And going back to your uh, notion of, like, more people need to care about this, no one really cares about the debt and deficit. Like I said, that's just a talking point. Once, like, Republicans had control of the House and Senate and the presidency under Trump, did they do anything? No, they did not. Under George W. Bush, did they do anything? No, they did not. It was only uh, once 
they're in the opposition, they start noticing, oh, we need to focus on like debt and deficit. So I don't really know how this could be a bipartisan issue. One side doesn't really care about it, to be honest, and the other claims they do, but it's all um, it's all uh, rhetoric. I've never seen any concrete action to actually solve the debt and deficit. Okay. So, Brian, do you have any thoughts on this? Two-party, one-party, pizza party? Uh, I was going to say a lot of what Dave said, um, but he said it a lot better than I could, so I appreciate I I'm pretty much in um, agreeing, uh, agreement with Dave. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I'm, I guess, perhaps I'm too optimistic, but I, I wish we could just... Uh, have two parties that could work stuff out still. And I think we do. There is still a bipartisan agreement. There are a lot of bipartisan bills that still happen. I think one thing is that it's a doom loop and that people, the us, the constituency, becomes more divided. And then so Congress responds, becomes more divided. And then when Congress becomes more divided and more bent on the issues, the people respond and become more divided. So I guess there's 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 power in the people to stop this, and there's power in Congress to stop this, too. But the number one mission of every representative is to get reelected, which has its pluses and minuses, right? If we're going to really hold officials accountable to act bipartisanly, then we need to make a point about that at the ballot box, and the constituency needs to speak up. And when there's times of bipartisan agreement, which there are still bipartisan agreements, then we need to pressure Congress, and they do respond then. So I guess if it was going to happen, there needs to be pressure on both sides to do something about the debt, because I think it can hurt both Democrats and Republican constituencies in the long run, because, I mean, we're all Americans. We're all going to deal with this. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I I do think you're you're optimistic. And I, I do commend that optimism I always have. Um, I think that's great. I mean, it's the reason why you have this show, you know? That's why we talk about these things. And so there can be more of an understanding and more of a, hopefully, an effort to be more bipartisan. I do agree with Dave right now that it's almost, it's a lost cause. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that there is some, some shred of hope um, to change the culture. I just don't think it's going to happen really anytime soon um and it does seem to be more productive unfortunately to throw bipartisan to the side um but i do commend your optimism and i do uh hope that we could get to a point like that at some point but but yeah yeah so to wrap it up any final thoughts dave and miranda Um, I believe I've said, uh, at least for me, I've said my piece. Um, sorry if I'm, I'm actually like driving right now, so that's why I'm not really, my party's in the road, not really a conversation. I hope you understand that, but I believe I've said my piece. Okay, Miranda? Um, I don't have anything. I think you, you all wrapped it up pretty nicely. Okay. Well, I guess my last point then is that you're right, Brian. Maybe I'm too optimistic. Maybe I'm living in a dream world where Nancy Pelosi and you know Mitch McConnell take hands and spring off into the meadows. But that doesn't necessarily need to happen for people to work together. And I think that 
the power is in constituencies. The power is in the people who elect politicians. If we're actually going to get politicians to come together and strike out deals that are popular with the general public, of which there are still issues, then we really need to come together as a society and stop socially sorting ourselves, meaning that we sort our identities, religious, cultural, ideological, into certain parties. And I guess break out of that mold and not be afraid to assert certain identities that maybe break with others that are aligned with our party. So I guess, really, the in-group, out-group dynamic has to tamper down a little bit to do that. And in terms of the debt, it does seem that perhaps right now it is stable, but we also really have to take a look and ask ourselves, how long will this debt be stable, and can this go on in perpetuity? And what can we do to be fiscally responsible, not only for ourselves, but for the children of the future? So, once again, thank you for our listeners for tuning in, and please keep the republic.